my playbook was outdated personally. So I started spending a lot of money. The economics were okay. They weren't terrible, but they weren't great either. And someone was like, what are you doing? That's not how you start a brand. You need to like spend 50 bucks a day and really let Facebook learn you and figure that out. And I was like building a bunch of creative and then spending $5,000. Like I called my friends at Facebook and I was like, can you remove my account spend limit? And they're like, sure, Jesse, you know what you're doing. Uh, yeah, it turns out I didn't really know what I was doing. I was spending in bursts trying to figure out which creative would work. And everyone was like, dude, that's not how you do it anymore. You've been the CEO of a 200 person company for eight years. You don't know what the hell you're doing. And that was like good and humbling. To state the obvious, starting and growing a DTC brand is hard. Even if you've been in the industry for years, Jesse Puji is the founder and CEO of Gateway X a bootstrap venture studio that helps build businesses in the D2C space. Jesse has been working with and growing brands for years from the outside looking in. But even for him, when he tried to build a brand from the inside out, there were some real challenges and lessons learned. And on this episode, Jesse told me all about that firsthand D2C venture, Hooforia, and the mistakes he made getting it off the ground. But he also talked about all the successes he's had and the advice he's been giving to the brands that come to him looking to take their companies to the next level. He talked about which channels to focus on and why founders really only hone in on one when they're looking to stand out. And he also gave us a peek into the future of mobile and why you should be looking at TikTok strategy as a benchmark for your own. Let's get into it. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerce insights. That's sfdc.co slash commerce insights, one word. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you to subscribe to our weekly e-commerce newsletter at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. It's amazing. It's great. You will learn a lot of good things. Go subscribe. Welcome back to another episode of Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at Mission. Today on the show, I have Jesse Puji, who's the founder and CEO of Gateway X. Jesse, so happy to have you here. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. I'm excited. Me too. I would love to start with an introduction of yourself because you have a really cool background. You've done a lot of things. You founded companies, investor, advisor. It just seems like you do everything. So I was hoping you could kind of give listeners a bit of an intro to yourself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So my quick story, I was born and raised in St. Louis. My dad was an immigrant, you know, entrepreneur. So kind of grew up seeing him. He had a travel agency, a real estate business, and was very much the kid who was lemonade stand or selling popcorn tins door to door, just always excited and kind of commercial in my in my own way. Freshman year of college, I met two guys, uh, Nick Shaw and Chris Amos. When we were, I think sophomores, we bought a domain, which was ampush.com, which is the first two letters of our last names. Nice. Chris Amos, Jessica, Puji, Nick Shaw. 
And we're like, one day we'll start a business with this. You know, we all went to Penn and, and, you know, if you know anything about Penn, like it's very pre-professional. So it was like, okay, we first, we got to go work on wall street and see what that's all about. So we all spent some time doing that and, you know, our hearts just weren't quite in it and it's the middle of a financial crisis. And so, you know, 2010, we all moved out West and just said, we're going to start a business. And, And we were big and still are big on bootstrapping and kind of being able to be profitable and kind of sustainable. And, you know, some friends said, Hey, you're good with numbers, data, go look at digital marketing. And, you know, we started poking around digital marketing and a long story short is that was right around the time Facebook was launching their self-serve ad platform. And we somewhat on a whim, you know, the summer of 2010, we're like, let's try to run some Facebook ads. We had a few clients and, you know, they started working really well. Like they had high engagement and, you know, I built some of the first ads. They were, they were really specific to an audience. It was like substitute teachers. It was telling them to go, you know, get a master's in teaching degree from Kaplan University mm-hmm. it was one of our clients. And, and next thing you know, the performance was really strong. We said, okay, let's go do more and more of this. And in early 2011, we got a call from Facebook and they said, who the hell are you guys? You're one of our top 100 global advertisers. Like your, your name is next to MasterCard or whoever and come meet us. Wow. And we came in with like a 25 slide deck of like all the product features that were missing. And at that time, Facebook had no API, it had no bulk upload tool. It was literally had to build every ad in the interface one by one. And we had people in India, just we would send them a spreadsheet and they would be uploading one ad at a time all day long, essentially. So we could get enough sort of scale there. So we had all these product ideas and features for them. We, we said, and they said, oh, this is really cool. Like we're actually looking for third parties to build software around and kind of be ecosystem partners to us. We'll give you guys access. We'll feed you, you know, feed you leads. Like, would you be interested? And we were like, yeah, sure. We'd love to be in that business. And so we built some software. We tried to sell software to, to companies and nobody wanted to buy it. They said, I need services. I need people to actually do this. And, you know, we didn't know what an ad agency was. We'd never lived in that world at all. And we were like, okay, well, they need people to run the ad. So let's go hire young, smart kids from top schools or from consulting or investment banking, because that's all we knew. And, you know, that's actually just turned out to be quite like a, a talent secret for us. And, and it's a real advantage over time. And if you go back to 2011, 2012, and the first 20, you know, customers, 10 of them, you, you wouldn't recognize their names because, you know, the, the businesses didn't work out. The other half are like Dollar Shave Club, Blue Apron, Peloton, Uber, yeah. you know, Supercell, like this, all these companies who were just getting off the ground at that time, you know, from that 2011, 2012 period, we were just growing super fast and the business grew to several hundred million dollars in ad spend mm-hmm. by 2015. You know, we sold a minority interest to this company called Red Ventures in late 2015, which was kind of a partial exit. And they really helped us turn the business from like a fast growing break-even business to a more sort of meat moderate growing, but very profitable business. And then we had this great issue, you know, there's no venture money in the business. It was like, oh, we have cash flow. What could we do with this? And that's when we we started investing in a bunch of D2C brands. We acquired a business. And then, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I decided I really love starting businesses and kind of the, the entrepreneurial piece of it. And I was like, I want to start a business that starts businesses. And so that's kind of what mm-hmm. Gateway X is, is sort of a, I call it like a bootstrap venture studio. We're launching a bunch of companies. Most of them have a, or all of them have like a D to C theme. So they're either brands themselves or they're kind of enablement businesses. And they're all businesses that we're trying to, you know, be very capital efficient in the way that we launch them. That's awesome. So what kind of brands do you put in or do you have in Gateway X? Like, are there any themes or names that I would maybe, you know, know of? Probably not. I mean, you know, we, I wrote a big thread about the first brand we launched called Puforia, and Puforia is the uh, happy feeling you get when you have a good number two. And, and I was, you know, it, it was, it's a funny story, right? Like I had done a lot of thinking towards the end of last year, I stepped away from day-to-day CEO role at Ampush in kind of March of 2020. 
and then sort of took the back half of 2020 off and got settled. I moved, I moved my family back to St. Louis and I was like, Oh, what should I do? What should I start? You know, researching all these spaces. And I got to January and it's like one of those moments where I was like, I just got to start doing something. Like it doesn't have to be the right thing. Perfect thing. I, I just want to start doing something. And if I have an idea, I'm going to like turn off my investor brain. And I'm just going to like do it because you always learn when you do things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was talking to my wife in January and it was like, I was like, oh, I want like, you know, high margin, 60% plus margin subscription solves a real problem. And, and, you know, she, we were kind of joking. We're kind of going through the list of issues people have. And she's like, well, you're always talking to your uncle. My, my uncle's a GI doctor. And she's like, about your, your issues. Like, what about that? And I was like, well, kind of laughed. And then I started poking around. I was like, well, it's kind of an interesting space. Like if you look at P and G and Unilever, all of them have like nine figure plus businesses, nine figure EBITDA businesses selling Metamucil and selling Align Probiotics. Yeah. There's no major brand in the space. There's a couple of startups who have been doing some interesting things. And, you know, again, I just sort of said, yeah, this is good. Like, let's, let's run with this. And then I was like, trying to think of an angle. And I was like, how come no one's being funny about this? So I thought, you know, being funny could be a good angle. Yeah. And I called my uncle and I was like, tell me more about digestive health. Like what's, I thought there was maybe a prescription medication, like a hymns where you could prescribe something. And he was like, no, it's much simpler than that. Like take this fiber and magnesium and take this probiotic with these strands. And he had this insight that I didn't know, which was like, he's like, pooping is the most important indicator of gut health. Like that's the thing you have to fix. And the thing that tells you if it's going right or wrong. And I was like, all right, that's like an interesting angle. I don't think, you know, and, and then I came across this word, which is actually like a pseudoscientific word, pouphoria. And I was like, oh gosh, this is so... Oh, it's a real word. It's a word scientists use. It's an actual feeling. No, it's like a real, you have nerves in that area that like <laughs> are triggered. It's a real term. Uh, it's like a pseudoscientific, it's not, you know. That's great. And so I was like, all right, this, this sounds interesting. And, and then I kind of went into this, like how fast, how cheap can I stand this up? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we got it up in less than four months probably less than $50,000, you know, including the whole supply chain, launching ads initially. And the recipe was like, what your uncle told you, you basically just went out and sourced that. Yeah, it's basically two products. Yeah, exactly. There's like fiber and magnesium mm-hmm. and then this probiotic with the specific strands he suggested. Okay. And it was interesting. Like we we got it going. We learned a lot. Like the, the cool stuff we learned was like, yes, you can do this fast. Like what you read out there is like, it's easier than ever to start. It was really easy to get it off the ground. And then, you know, in the model that we're doing, we want the economics to really be profitable from early on. And we really struggled to, with that. And what I mean by that is we wanted it to be first order profitable from an acquisition perspective. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one, one struggle for me was like at Ampush, I've been running, you know, we run uh, the average spenders probably spending $20 million and my playbook was outdated personally. So I started spending a lot of money and it wasn't, you know, it was, the economics were okay. They weren't terrible, but they, were, they weren't great either. And someone was like, what are you doing? That's not how you start a brand. You need to like spend 50 bucks a day and, and like really let Facebook learn you and figure that out. And what were you doing before that? Because I'm sure people are like, am I doing that? I was like building a bunch of creative and then like spending, you know, $5,000. Like I called my friends at Facebook and I was like, can you remove my account spend limit? And they're like, sure, Jesse, like, you know what you're doing. <laughs> Go for it. And I was like, eh, yeah, it turns out I didn't really know what I was doing. Okay. I was spending in bursts trying to figure out which creative would work. And everyone was like, dude, that's not how you do it anymore. Like, mm. dude, you've been the CEO of a 200 person company for eight years. Like, you don't know what the hell you're doing. And that was like good and humbling. So we learned a lot about getting it built quickly, the supply chain up. Like that was like super helpful stuff to kind of build that infrastructure. The biggest mistake we made, you know, and we, what we've sort of done with it now is it's still around. So you can still buy it if you're listening, go get some Pooforia if you, you want to have a 10 out of 10 poop is, you know, we got the economics to like a three or four X, three or four sort of payback period, which is just, 
it would require a lot of capital to scale that business. And we're not, that's just not how we're doing things. Mm-hmm. We started another business, which has been cash flow positive since its third month, which I can talk about and doesn't have this issue, right? So we have interesting comparison points where we're going, yeah, we're not going to do this, even though you could probably scale this and turn it into something like we want it to be profitable from early on. And I think the big thing we were missing, and it's kind of funny for me because I've always done B2B and, and my only B2C orientation has been doing growth marketing for brands who already knew who their customers were and stuff. It's like, everyone was like, oh, who's our customer? Jesse, do we have a perspective on that? And I was like, oh, like everyone poops. Like, I don't know, test, like try stuff. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And one of the biggest learnings when we started talking with smart people out there who built brands was you got to have a persona. You got to think about who this person is. You got to really speak to them in a very specific way, especially in categories that are competitive and commoditized. Hmm which certainly digestive supplements are. So we talked to guys like Mike Duda and, and, you know, he's built all these here and he was like, it's a fun concept, but like, who's the customer? And I was like, I don't know. You know, it sounds obvious now to say it. And then the other thing we did, which, which was makes sense is we started talking to the customers and we started learning a ton about what, you know, the words they used and how this makes them feel and the issues. And so, you know, rather than we debated a lot of like, should we re- relaunch Puforia? We actually, we learned a ton about the customer and we picked a specific customer and we're launching a new product later this month that we really think is going to really speak to a specific customer that we're excited about. That's an awesome story. Okay. So I want to hear about the other company now that you launched and you're like, it's cash flow positive within a couple months. I want to hear how you went about building and thinking about that company in a different way. And as maybe a, you know someone like you who's thinking, okay, if I were to build something right now from day one and I want it cash flow positive, like what's the playbook that you're using now to kind of you know figure that out or think through that? One thing I'm learning a lot from like my coach and stuff is like just trusting my energy and doing things and then being able to like reflect and iterate and change things versus overthinking things up front, which I'm sure everyone has to, you know, that resonates to some degree with everyone. This was a business I would not have, if you'd asked me a year ago, is this on your list? I would have said, not really. At Ampush, we had built out a 50-person offshore team you know, they handle all the road tasks related to growth marketing. Maybe QA, QA my URLs, make sure the UTM parameters are set up, take this creative and cut it in eight different variations. And, and this was a team that we had taught how to do all of these different things. They didn't know how to do growth marketing prior to meeting us. So we sort of hired them and trained them on doing this. And a lot of Ampush alums go on to run growth at a bunch of brands. That's like a pretty common career path. And, you know, you get coffee, I get coffee with them and go, oh, how's it going? Do you miss Ampush? And, you know, their top three list, I was like, what do you miss most? And one of the top three things they would be say they'd miss is this offshore operation. And I'm like, are you trying to tell me that, like, why can't you go do this? Like, this is probably, and they go, no, there's no company who does offshore growth marketing. I was like, that seems so strange to me. And then I invested in a bunch of companies, DTC brands, and I'd meet with their marketing organizations. And, and it was taking them a really long time to get things done that I thought should be getting done in half the time. And I, I asked a few times ago, oh, it's because the person who's supposed to be doing the Facebook ad spends half their time reporting. And I'm like, why aren't you outsourcing that? I don't know. We don't know what to do with that. And so the second business is called Growth Assistant, growthassistant.com. It's a great domain. And we embed offshore talent inside of marketing organizations to take on all the kind of road tasks. So we you know, hire them, train them, and then place them inside of brands. And they're sort of embedded employees. Uh, and it's only $2,500 a month. Wow. I need this. For podcast growth and stuff. There you go. I realize it's very different than like I went through and was trying to hire a growth marketer for a while, but for podcasting and right. it's such a different world. Everyone's like applying and they have, you know, D2C knowledge or other things. And I'm like, oh, I just need someone to help with this. So I might check it out and see what your team's all about over there. <laughs> and what's interesting is I didn't, you know, I was reflecting with my Ampush co-founder, Nick, about this. 
And he was, you know, giving me good feedback. And he goes, well, of course that one is so much more successful, Jesse. Like, you know, the customer, you know, the problem, you didn't even have to explicitly think about it because you knew you, those are your former employees or brands we worked with, you know, them so well that you were able to build a, an offering for them just literally off the top of your head because you know them so well. That's why that business is doing, you know, multiple millions in ARR already. It's not even a year old. Wow. And it's profitable. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. And that's like the tale of two cities so far, the two businesses we've started and kind of where they stand, but the really good learning. I mean, there's good learnings and I'm starting to build the framework in my mind of, oh yeah, customer, customer discovery. How do we get the story right? Like there are definitely pieces to this. In some ways, I'm relearning a lot of things I learned when I first started Ampush in a way that hopefully can turn into something that will become more repeatable over time. Yeah. Very, very cool. I mean, when thinking about the platforms right now that everyone's using, I want to hear kind of your perspective of like how brands and companies should be thinking about the platforms that they're tapping into. You know, everyone is supposedly moving off Facebook, trying out other things. I know you're mentioning mobile before this started recording. And I kind of want to hear your, you know, looking into a crystal ball, like what are you guys predicting right now when it comes to, you know, starting a company and building from scratch and trying to attract an audience in the right way and connecting with them in the right way? Yeah, for sure. I mean, before you think about platform, obviously, I'll give I'll take that a couple of different directions. I mean, before you think about platform, I think thinking about who you're talking to, who's the audience. And we found the persona. And again, this might be very basic if you're if you're an experienced user. But for me, I was like, oh, you have a single person and you really try to build something for that single persona, that single person. Because even though you know it's going to attract more than that single person, it gives you a focal point that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. And for our new product, it's you know it's a 51 year old woman. Her name is Holly. She's a real person. She's a real estate agent. She's attractive. She's on the go a lot. And we literally like m- multiple times a day in our office, you'll go like, "Would Holly think about it that way? Would she? Would she? Would her mind?" And so that, I think that's the first step. Then it's like, what story? What narrative are you telling? How are you telling that story? And those are kind of the two starting points I would go. And then from a platform basis. We still think Facebook and Instagram are, are quite powerful. You know, obviously, I think for Twitter, Twitter for B2B, I mean, Growth Assistant gets 50% of its leads from Twitter mm-hmm. organically, which is sort of insane. Wow. Twitter for the win. Yeah. And then so Twitter, you know, is still early days, I think. One big theme we're seeing in the future of all of mobile is how are people going to consume and engage in, with information? And so you think about like Facebook came out with a news feed. And the last decade has been about the newsfeed, right? You go to Facebook, LinkedIn, websites are designed that way. Everything's scrolling, everything's... And you go, now, you know, it's changing. Like pictures, videos, and more immersive experience. Like TikTok does not have a feed anywhere. Mm-hmm. And TikTok is as addictive, if not more, and, and way yeah. more immersive and rich than, uh, you know, and obviously Facebook stories and Snap, Snap stories and those kinds of things are really rich. And so... A, I think we're thinking a lot about TikTok specifically as a channel. It feels to me like it, Facebook felt 10 years ago. It's distinctive, but like there are some similar elements of algorithmic orientation and other things that we think are really powerful. We think it's not going to stop there. Like websites themselves will change a lot in the next five years and will be way more video first, way more interactive and immersive than what they are today. Like the idea of it's almost like a newspaper. You're like reading this text and scrolling around and tapping. And think about how much information you get from reading a blurb on a website versus watching like a 10 second TikTok video. It's just so different. So, so that's, that's thematically we're spending. Um, and there's a bunch of, I think, things that flow from that, you know, the way you create content, the way you tell stories, all that stuff. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? 
Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. So do you think consumers are ready right now to go to a website and interact that way? Like, do you see any brands who are kind of tapping into that strategy and shifting so it's not just the news feed style and they're actually, you know, having a very experience oriented website. Is there anyone that you're watching who's doing it well? There's what's it called? Super great dot reviews. I think they do a really nice job of being immersive. I mean, I've seen like, you know, there's like the Instagram story style thing in the ESPN app. So you can watch your plays mm-hmm. pop shop live. There's like a mobile experience. That's like, you know, all like live selling and stuff. But yeah, I, I think, I think this, this form factor, this approach that's really been designed for the true mobile experience first is going to, is going to become dominant. And, you know, we were, we're not ready to announce it yet, but we're working on an idea like this for e-commerce businesses that we're really excited about. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear about it. How should brands be adjusting then how they're thinking about content? Because I'm sure, you know, many of them are still not fully tapping into video and thinking about like, how should I be presenting my product in a different way? How would you advise them right now? Or what do you think would be a good way to go to get ahead of this? You know, I think, Underneath success on all these channels and marketing, there's certain types of skills that you build. And I think that's oftentimes a thing I, a lot of founders miss. You know, one, one thing I was going to say earlier, the question is like, I get a lot of founders who come talk to me, both the ones I've invested in and the ones that I haven't. They kind of go, okay, I've got my marketing strategy, Jesse. I've got Google AdWords and I've got Facebook and we're going to do email marketing. And I got one person, they're going to do all that stuff. And I'm like, uh, I don't think that's going to work. Like one person only has a certain number of hours in the day, you know, and, and, and you don't know how, you don't know what message is going to resonate on Facebook. You don't know what types of email headlines are going to work yet. And so I'll encourage founders often to pick one channel. And, and like my rule of thumb is, is 90 plus 90 to 120 days on a channel requires over 50% of one founder's time. And then also requires probably someone who knows Facebook. Some founders go, Oh, do I need to go learn Facebook ads? And I go, yeah, you could, but that's, that's a tough thing. You can find people on sites like growth collective or market or hire who know how to like run the campaigns themselves. But as the founder, you want to be very involved in the, what are we saying? Who are we saying that to? Did a lot of people engage in that? Oh, not, not really. Okay. Well, let's try saying this instead. And really like iterating that narrative and that story to make the economics work on a specific channel. And it actually takes, in my experience, that level of depth and dedication for a period of time and then it's like, okay, okay, now we've done enough here. We have enough things that are, okay, now I can kind of zoom out and maybe I can go spend time on another channel. But doing them concurrently is usually a recipe for disaster because you just, it's literally time in the day that you have to go and build those things. So anyway, underneath that, underneath those things, you develop certain skills. Well, like I get it really good at copywriting or photography has to be a really compelling skill. Or even like the way that I phrase questions is a really valuable skill set I have to, I have to build into my site and my marketing because it matters. And I think the like first person short video storytelling is like a skill I would aspire to, we are aspiring here and, and would encourage people to aspire to build. Mm-hmm. And in some ways you go, yeah, of course, Jesse, that's whatever. But on the other hand, you go, that's like a pretty new skill. Yeah. Like selfie video telling where you're like following yourself around. 10 seconds being able to give a video that people find compelling, interesting, and makes them want to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in the second, first or second inning of that. And, and I just think that that's as a starting point. Now, obviously there's, 
you know, how you manipulate, to, you know, the TikTok, what, what, what do you put first? What do you put second? There's all these like specific skills around that, but I think genuinely connecting with a human being and, and telling a story with first person video in a short time is like a thing where I'm like, let's get really good at that skill. I agree. Do you think just the founder should be doing that? Or should you be having like your entire marketing team thinking about that? Cause I always think about like, should we be tapping in? Like you have all these great employees around you. Why not get, you know, them to start helping get their stories. Oh, hundred percent. No, no. Yeah. When I think I think of these as organizational skills, right? Whenever you peel back on any company that's been really successful, again, there's like the the outputs you see in the world and, and maybe their numbers and stuff. But underneath that, there's always a set of unique skills that the company developed firsthand mm-hmm. that, that we're not just like, then that's another way. Like, oh, could you just do my Facebook ads for me? And I go, eh, that's not how it works. You actually have to develop the messaging and the approach. Yep. And, and every piece of it in some sense is entrepreneurial. Um, but yeah, I think it's everyone in the organization, even like, like I would go as extreme as to say, like, do your job interviews happen that way? Mm-hmm. Like, can you screen resumes that way? Can you interact and build a library of like async content internally where someone's like, okay, this is what I did on this project. Like, that's the way you, you really live a skill. And then all of a sudden in a year, everyone's like, wow, this company's crushing it. And, and no one ever talks about what happened. And in this case, it could be they just got, they made first person narrative video, such a core thing to who they were and showed up everywhere that all of a sudden, like they were developing the playbook on it before there was a playbook to develop on it. Oh, I love that. Taking notes on that one. That's great. So what other questions are founders coming to you with? Like, what are you being asked maybe multiple times? You're like, there's a constant theme around the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. One common question I get is like, can you help me find a growth marketer? Like, oh my gosh, I need a person who does growth marketing. There's, that's the most in-demand skill set, and, and it's worth unpacking that as an interesting trend in the world and kind of what I tell them typically, which is, you know, if you can find a person, they're the right culture fit, you can pay them all that stuff, hire them, good, great. It's going to take you three to six months and it's like a 50% failure rate. Yep. The reason is, is because, I mean, some of it's culture fit and other things, but this is a new discipline. And this is like one of parts of our thesis for growth assistant is like 20 years ago, everyone knew software engineering was important. They couldn't find a software engineer and nobody quite understood how it worked. And all these outsourced firms, multi, multiple billions of billion dollar companies like Wipro, mm-hmm. even Accenture to some degree, that's all they do. Essentially, they find offshore engineers. Yeah. We think the same thing is going to happen in growth marketing, which is part of the thesis there. But I think, you know, what I tell people is it's a new discipline and, and it's like, you know, there's like investment banking and trading and they're very quantitative analytical people. And that's what they do. There's like traditional marketers who are creative. There's like internet people who are hustly, you know, uh, they, they, they try things, they're risk. And you kind of need all those things in, in one skill set and in one person. And it turns out like, you know, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't, it's not often common to have those many different things in one skill set. And so, you know, my, part of my advice, and, and obviously a little bit biased because we did this at Ampush, we tended to hire for the rigor of the analytical thinking because we found that harder to teach and then tried to find people who had a, a bent that was creative and entrepreneurial. And then we tried to foster that creativity and entrepreneurialism. And, and so that's kind of my advice oftentimes is like, can you find yourself a consultant or investment banker who fits a certain bill? And like, this stuff is very learnable and it's very like, interestingly, the tactics are very like psychological and sometimes feeling illogical because it's they're, the way you market is, to tap into certain biases of people and get them curious. And, you know, but the actual way the math of all this stuff works is highly quantitatively rigorous. And so once a person understands that and kind of meld them two together, you find a lot of things. So that's a very common question I'm getting is like, how do I hire a growth marketer? How do I get someone working? How do I get someone training? It's just a tough thing to do right now. I can definitely see why you're getting asked that a lot. Yeah. I mean, we talked about the channel thing. That's obviously a common question. 
I get a lot of questions on org design, how to manage the org. When do I find an agency? When do I not find an agency sort of thing? And obviously like, like a lot of things, it starts with who's at the top. Like if none of the founders know much about customer acquisition, growth marketing, and haven't taken the time to learn it, it can be very challenging. Even someone who's cracked the code on it without following my 90 day, 50% rule, I still tell them to like double back and dig in because I've seen lots of companies at the growth stage, you know, I don't want to say fall apart, but like struggle deeply because they wake up one day and the economics of their business is just not as good or something goes wrong in a way that they don't know how to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's very common for Ampush. Ampush tends to take on companies who have reached about 10 million in annual media spend. And it's extremely common for us to go in and the media budget is 80% Facebook. And of the 80% of Facebook, 80% of that is a single creative. So literally a business that might be doing 20, 25 million in revenue is being driven 60% by one creative. Wild. And it's very common. And, uh, you know, and a big part of what Ampush does is tries to diversify that and expand it and test into different concepts and all that different stuff. How many creatives should they have? Like when thinking about it, like what's a good number that you kind of go for? We would say something more like you should be testing, you know, 10 to 20 creative a week and two to three concepts a week, something like that. Yeah. And then however many of you're working, you can have, it's not like there's no best practice of how many to have or not have, but there's a very common issue that occurs where the, the founder doesn't know what to do with this. Okay. My, my head of growth left and I don't know how to design the org. When do I bring it in? When do I not bring it in? And how do I staff this? And I tend to talk a lot about, again, who are you as the founder? Then what's the next level down? Is that person, do they fit to what extent are they rigorous and quantitative, entrepreneurial, creative, those three vectors? And then what do you need to plug in below that? And then I tend to believe a lot of times marketing is separate from product and dev. And I'm a big fan of like, have a growth marketer leading, have campaign management, have a designer, have a developer and have almost like a product analyst type of quantitative person. So to me, that's the like the three to four person team internally that's running something uh, like that. And I think the unique parts are particularly the developer. But what one of the happening in a lot of organizations when the developer sits inside of the typical product org, the marketing stuff gets pushed to the bottom of the, the queue every, every time. And in some ways, you just, you just need to siphon it out and run it independently. I don't know how many brands think about getting a developer on board right away. That's something that I would think would be hired out agency. But then you're right, if no one knows how to manage it, and they're like, I don't know what I'm looking at. Totally. Yeah, that might be the case. But even then, there, there has to be like a developer who is not, who's specifically working with marketing and, and is not encumbered by non-marketing stuff. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the market stuff never gets done. And then it's them like, well, our CAC keeps going up. And it's like, well, you're not testing any new landing pages. You're not testing any new signup flows, of course. Yeah, got it. So I want to go back to talking about TikTok for a second, because a lot of founders who've come on here have very like mixed results. I know you're like betting big on TikTok and you see that as kind of like Facebook from 10 years ago. And people right now are saying, okay, it's hard to even measure like attribution and figure out if it's working. And we get these crazy high impressions. And then actually like our conversions, I can't even tell if we're getting any. So I want to hear your thoughts on, you know, why I'm hearing that from a bunch of founders and where you think it's headed. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess I'm going to sound a little bit like an old man, but let me, let me tell you, let me tell you the story of Facebook. Please. (laughs) When we first launched on Facebook, they had no tracking pixel. There was no way to track anything. We had to track it ourselves. We built our own pixel to track it. We would regularly go 24 to 48 periods where their whole interface would go down. It wouldn't work. Once we were integrated into their API, their API would change so fundamentally every 90 days that it would take like two weeks of all of our engineers working in order to catch up with it. And 10 other examples <laughs> and stories like that. Yep. 
And so like, it maybe I get, maybe I'm an old man or I have the perspective of it. like, I'm not betting on TikTok because of some technical thing happening this moment. Like I'm looking at the broader trends and going, what, this is going to be a huge platform, which is sort of what we did with Facebook. And we paid a high tax, you know, uh, we made a lot of money being early to Facebook, but we also paid a high tax of like a nascent early platform. I would flip the question around to some degree, which is not, does it work or is TikTok working for you? But it's almost like, how can you make TikTok work? Mm-hmm. What do you need to do? Do you need to create a vanity URL so that all the traffic goes to that vanity URL? So you're sure that the people are going from there. There's all these various things you can test. Can you give a coupon code? Like there's ways that you you may have to do some gymnastics. Yeah, make it work. Adjust your body to what TikTok is doing to make it work, which is what we had to do in the early days of Facebook. But at the end of the day, there's billion engaged people on that platform who are watching, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 minutes a day of that stuff. And the question is, again, how do you connect with them and how do you find ways to make it work? So we haven't, you know, we found it, we, we aren't doing large scale stuff yet on TikTok. We're doing a bunch of like waitlist testing and, and things, but we found it to be frankly way better than Facebook was 10 years ago and a pretty strong platform, pretty well, you know, easy to use, easy to leverage. The creative is obviously the most challenging thing there, but we haven't found any major issues with tracking just yet. It's, it's super early though. So I'm not sure I would know them even if there were. Yeah, that's a great answer. So I want to hear maybe a contrarian view from you in like the world of D2C, like what's something that you believe that maybe other founders wouldn't agree with you on? Hmm. I believe more enterprise value will be created by $20 million brands than by like billion dollar brands, more total enterprise value. Okay. Why? Um, Because I I think the promise of like Shopify, internet, e-commerce is far more specific uh, the word I don't like the word niche, but like far more specifically tailored solutions for people, not just the products themselves, but the brands. There's a lot of pockets of 100,000 people out there that there's a specific problem you can solve for them. I think it's it makes more sense and is easier to build a brand that's of that size. And oftentimes, like capitalization for those brands makes more sense, like because you're not putting a lot of money into them versus the billion dollar, like the Casper type situations that are these like things that you know high fly and then go down. A lot of these brands are being pushed to grow in ways that are not natural to what their market and customer actually needs. And I think as that in the 10, 15 year horizon, as that kind of like levels out, we're going to look at it and go, oh my gosh, there's a trillion, I mean, those numbers up, a trillion dollars across 10,000, $20 million brands. That's the enterprise versus there's like a oh, hundred billion in, in the like, you know, 50, a hundred unicorns that have been created. Yeah. Oh, that's a good view. I mean, I've always thought that when it comes to raising money as a brand of like, will your investors, I mean, they're going to want you to return the fund if you're there, you have to be there for a reason. And so what are they going to have you, you know, what growth metrics are they going to be pushing you into and having you think about that maybe you wouldn't do otherwise? How do you think a brand should think about bringing on investors? I think early on, you can probably raise a little bit of money without a major issue because, you know, raising a million or two dollars, even a $50 million outcome is good for everybody. I think once you get onto the more traditional venture path of like the $10 million raises plus the enterprise value that you, you have to generate for those returns, you just have to make sure that you have a vision and you're willing, you're going to go do that. And oftentimes I don't think that's the case. And people do it because they're supposed to do it because they're supposed to raise venture and it ends up being kind of a worse outcome for them and everybody else. And some of it's just like encouraging founders to be more honest with themselves about both what they want, as well as like how big their market could truly be and what a win would look like. Because you're just taught to say, oh, my market is huge. Yeah, everyone. So big, right? 
And, and I think like, I want, I want to normalize people just going like, no, like this market's, you know, I think you could build a $30 million top line business here. And I don't think you could build a bigger business than that. Yeah. And that's great. That's okay. Like anyone, any human who builds a $30 million top line business, will their life will, will change and they'll get to live the entrepreneurial dream. And so there's nothing wrong with having a massive vision for disrupting a product or whatever, like a Warby type thing. That's really, really game changing. Nothing. That's amazing. But it's okay if you don't have that. And it's totally, you know, and, and, and so I think, I just think there's too many people raising money who are going to have a real tough time returning the capital they're taking in a way that's compelling to their investors. And so it's making, again, them do all these awkward gymnastics of trying to grow and scale a business, which at the end of the day, it just increases the risk profile. And maybe the founder's experience isn't quite what they want it to be either. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. All right. So the last thing I want to touch on is, you know, you have helped grow companies through growth marketing. You've had your own companies. There's probably a lot of secrets that you're kind of seeing right now. You're like, Ooh, that's a good one. I don't want to tell anyone. I want to kind of hear what you're seeing. And you're like most excited about maybe in the past like month or two that you think is like new and game changing. And you're not even sure if you want to share it. It's so secretive. Hmm, That's a great one. I mean, I said one earlier, which is like Twitter organic marketing for growth assistant is blowing my mind at like how many leads we're getting from it. How are you getting those leads? Is it all just through like good tweets, engaging tweets, tagging people, like just the simple basics of Twitter? I think it's a standard playbook. I, I think it's like some of it's, you know, has drafts off mine, obviously, because I'll retweet things that the, the brand will will push out there. But yeah, I think it's like relevant. It's like helpful content. It's like kind of plugging it in a way that doesn't feel like it's quite plugging it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's gone. We launched it in August. I think it's got 1500 followers already, which is like kind of crazy to me because it's like, yeah. you know, it's, it's this random like uh, offshoring business. But I think that's a secret. Like I, I, it's been way, Twitter for that business has been way more commercial than I expected it to be. Uh, that's kind of a big surprise. Here's one that I've been playing around with. And interestingly, like we did this on Facebook also that I've like jokingly told people in three, in six months, there's going to be an article written about us. We're trying like text only ads on TikTok. Okay. And the reason we're doing that is because they're super cheap and fast to make, because I believe with the voiceover capability and like a good story, anything works. Like there's no reason it shouldn't work. It it can only get better with actors and things, but like the core story, um, and it's like, it, it grabs people's attention. Like it's distinctive. Especially a good voice, like a narrator style voice. Where you're like, well, they have like, soothing? I don't know if you're on TikTok, but they have that standard voice. Uh-uh. They have, the, there's a standard voice attached to every, like any of the TikTok things. Yeah. That's probably a couple that come to mind now. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing your secrets. I had a feeling you would have a couple of good answers. And I've actually never asked that question on an interview before. So oh, good. you were a good guinea pig. <laughs> Jesse, thanks so much for hopping on here today. Yeah, like I said, I really had a blast. So until next time, where can people find out more about you and Gateway X? Yeah, our website is gateway.xyz. Uh, we're always looking for talented people to join what we're building. And then I'm on Twitter, just JS Puji, P-U-J-J-I. Awesome. Thanks so much. everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnext in commerce. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Upnext in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.